The James Webb Space Telescope is rightfully capturing all the headlines this week, but we thought we could bring your attention to one of the unsung heroes of scientific space programs, the Landsat program, which celebrates its 50th anniversary this week. That's right, you might not be familiar with its name, but you absolutely will be aware of its work. And we're joined by Dr. Jim Irons, the former director of the Earth Science Division at NASA Goddard, and Dr. Jeff Masek, Landsat 9 project scientist since 2015. What's your favorite scientific space program? Let us know on our social media pages, at Space and Things 1 on Twitter, and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And don't forget to leave us a review or drop us a rating if your podcast platform allows it. It really helps us out. But right now, enjoy episode 98 of the Space and Things podcast. You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 98 of the Space Things podcast. Things may sound a little bit different today because Emily's not at home. She's uh, elsewhere. <laughs> yes, I am house-sitting for my sister this week. So I brought my uh, base here for now. Really good week, uh, just hanging out with my family. And oh, nice. As usual, busy with uh, Celestius's next flights that are coming up. Oh, when is the next one? We, well, we have the Aurora flight, which is coming up on November 30th. That's a suborbital flight from New Mexico. And I'm really excited about that because that'll be Phil Chapman's first space flight. Oh, wow. Yes, I am so happy about it. And then we have the Enterprise flight, the Tranquility flight, the Excelsior flight, and I think the Destiny flight, which is a lunar mission. So we've got like five space flights coming up in the next year or so, so. I'm going to be a little busy. Yeah, that's pretty exciting, though. Right, before we get into today's topic, you've written an article this week, which does link in really nicely with what we're talking about today. So give us a little bit of a synopsis of that one, and I'll put it in the show notes as always. Yeah, it kind of links in. It it talks about the Landsat program and how during the uh, 1980s, there was actually briefly a plan to uh, rescue and fix a, a Landsat satellite utilizing the space shuttle. I did not oh, wow. know about this. You know, I wanted to write something about Landsat because it's such an underrated program and it really deserves a moment in the spotlight. I stumbled upon an article and it does, discussed about how um, they were going to try to rescue one with the shuttle at one point. I was like, whoa, I had no idea. So I did a little deeper digging. I thought that was so cool. So, yep, I wrote a little bit about it. Well, that really does link in very nicely with what we're about to talk about, doesn't it? Yes, let's crack on. Uh, (laughs) So let's introduce this week's main topic. On July 23rd, 1972, Landsat 1 was launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. At the time, it was called the Earth Resources Technology Satellite, or ERTS, and it was the first Earth-observing satellite to be launched with the express intent to study and monitor our planet's land masses. Currently in orbit, we have Landsat 7, 8, and 9, and it, is, it remains the longest-running program of satellite imagery on Earth and provides a unique resource for those who want to observe global change over the last 50 years. 
And to talk us through this program, we're joined by Dr. Jim Irons, who has recently retired, but was the director of the Earth Science Division at NASA Goddard. He is a recipient of the NASA Distinguished Service Medal, which is the highest honor the agency confers. We're also joined by Dr. Jeff Masek, who has been a Landsat 9 project scientist since 2015. Okay, we're off to a good start, Flight Cool. Thank you for joining us. We'll start with a question for Dr. Irons. So we love a good scene setting question. Can you discuss uh, what factors led to the creation of the, the ERTS, the Earth Resources Technology Satellite Program, uh, which is later known as the Landsat Program? And, and how far back does its heritage go? Um, its heritage goes back really to the early 60s when NASA began launching uh, satellites in the Tyros and Nimbus series, uh, principally for atmospheric observations um, to support uh, weather forecasting and meteorological research. A few visionaries, however, in the, in the late 60s, after viewing photographs uh, taken by astronauts uh, in orbit around the Earth uh, with handheld cameras, began to realize that it would be possible to image the surface of the Earth as well from space. And uh, the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, the, the head of it at that time, named William Pecora or Bill Pecora, began to advocate for a satellite program that, that he called the Earth Resources Technology Satellite Program, or ERTS, uh, with his boss, Secretary of the Interior, Stuart Udall. They began to propose and, and uh, advocate for a system designed to image repeatedly the continental and coastal surfaces of, of the Earth. After some programmatics and politics, the U.S. government finally decided that NASA had the expertise to build and launch satellites for such a purpose and started to design what was called Earth, which later became Landsat 1. Back then, uh, in 1972, you kind of touched on this uh, in your in the first question. Landsat was based on the design of another satellite, uh, pretty markedly. Uh, it was based on Nimbus, which was a weather satellite program. Right. Why was that? Nowadays, I, I want to emphasize Landsat is designed by, a, I think, Northrop Grumman Innovative Systems. It no longer looks like Nimbus. But can you tell us a little bit about why was that in the beginning? Uh, the reason was um, the satellite itself, in the jargon of NASA and, and the aerospace industry, is often called the, the spacecraft bus. And it, it provides uh, power and navigation and, and stabilization for the instruments that are flown as the payload. And NASA had a lot of experience with that particular satellite bus because of the Nimbus program. And the difference was different instruments were designed to be carried aboard that spacecraft bus, uh, different than those that were designed for the meteorological observations of the atmosphere. NASA knew that bus worked well, particularly in a polar orbit. The decision was made uh, to, to continue to use that Nimbus bus uh, to carry the, uh, the Earths or the Landsat instruments. Yeah, it's probably worth adding that you know, in spaceflight, you don't have to redesign something. It's probably better to use something that already works. It's uh, been tested and proven. Uh, very often we have to design new instruments, but um, if we can get away with using 
bus and we'll definitely do it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm glad you mentioned the polar orbit. So here we go with some naivety on my part here, but we'll do our best. So, uh, so far there have been nine Landsat satellites, although one failed to reach orbit. So eight and three are currently active. Bear in mind, I am a complete novice when it comes to orbital mechanics, I think would be the expression, maybe not. Can you explain how high they are and what kind of orbit enables them to gather the best data? First of all, they're 705 kilometers in altitude. Um, and they're in a near polar orbit such that the Earth is rotating under them. And the particular orbit they're in is called a sun synchronous orbit. So every time one of the uh, satellites passes over the equator, the sun is in basically the same position. So you get the same illumination conditions on the ground for every observation. And that's really critical for an imaging satellite. Um, and so in particular case of Landsat at 705 kilometer orbit, 98 degree inclination, we were able to uh, image the same spot on the Earth every 16 days. So we have a repeating ground track on the Earth every 16 days from one satellite. Uh, as you say, we have usually two on orbit at any one time, and that gives us an eight-day repeating cycle. All right. Well, we're going to move forward a lot in time. So uh, what discoveries about Earth trends has Landsat made uh, that you think are the most important and will be uh, most remembered? Jim, do you want to start? Well, I'll start, and I'll caveat my answer by saying there are so many, we don't have enough time to, to go through uh, them. But uh, there's a number of outstanding examples. Uh, a lot of the early work with Landsat data, uh, the purpose was to map uh, the agricultural areas of the earth and determine what had been planted and what was uh, growing across the globe. And this was used in order to help commodity reports that the USDA, Foreign Agricultural Service, uh, releases quarterly. So up to then, they had principally using field surveys and reports from uh, country uh, and county agents uh, to de determine what was planted and what kind of shape was it in as it was growing in order to help commodity investing. And uh, Landsat provided the first global views of agricultural areas across the earth to help with that process. And the National Agricultural Statistical Service in the U.S. and the Foreign Agricultural Service in the U.S. Department of Agriculture continue to use Landsat data and other data for that purpose today. Moving on in, into the 80s and uh, early 90s, Landsat data provided the first accurate determinations of the rate of uh, rainforest deforestation uh, in, in Amazonia and across the uh, belt of rainforest around the equator. Um, so that's very important. It's still used today to look at the impact on uh, rainforests uh, of conversion to agriculture and look at forest disturbance and, and other uh, forest ecosystems. Other examples, uh, Landsat data have been used to monitor glacial retreat, as uh, virtually all, or almost all, of our glaciers around the world are retreating as a result of global warming. So Landsat data are used to monitor that process over you know, a five-decade-long dec timescale. Uh, Jeff, why don't you jump in with a few more examples, since I stole your thunder and forest disturbance. No, it's fine. I mean, so... 
I guess if, if you wanted to look at the, over a long term, you know, Landsat was just maybe originally designed to inventory natural resources, um, and it's still used for that, as James said. Uh, but increasingly, when you think about trends, you're thinking about responses of the planet to climate change. And so Landsat has been used in recent decades to look at uh, the effect of climate change on ecosystems, on ice caps, glacier flow, uh, retreat of mountain glaciers, as, as Jim indicated, uh, coral reef bleaching. And so the, the particular question depends in part on where you're looking in, in the Russian Far East. Uh, people have documented the replacement of um, large trees by, by pine trees due to climate change. In the southwestern U.S., it's the dieback of pinyon juniper forests. In the Arctic, it's the, the advance of tundra, the greening of tundra. You know, taken together, it basically provides a, what we think of as a family photo album. It's a, it's a snapshot through time of how the, the planet is changing over the last 50 years. I also tend to think of Landsat, um, I always call it a Swiss Army knife, because it Unlike many NASA missions, it doesn't have just one science question it's trying to answer. It's really foundational for a whole variety of uh, geology, land cover, hydrology um, applications. Okay, so my mind is, is going off in a thousand different directions <laughs> listening to, to how you talk. How easy is it for anyone to go on and access this data? Is there a place where someone can pick one spot on earth and see 50 years of change on that one, a time lapse of change on that one spot. Do you have to apply for that information or uh, is it just there for anyone to, to be able to access? So, so this is a good spot to, to uh, remind ourselves that Landsat is a partnership between NASA, which builds and launches the satellites and the US Geological Survey that actually just distributes the data and operates the satellites once they're on orbit. And so USGS, processes the data and makes the data available to anyone on a what we call a non-discriminatory basis so anybody can go into their web interface search for an image pull it off for free if you want to get a time series of 50 years uh, you can do that you can pull off uh, hundreds of images that are required every 16 days from some locations um, and then you can put that time series together to look at the trends in vegetation or, or hydrology and what have you in addition, um, a lot of people are now taking on that role through private cloud computing environments. So, for example, Google has what they call Google Earth Engine, where they have all of the data obtained from USGS put into their cloud environment, and you can apply algorithms against that entire archive. And in literally you know, a minute or two, pull up a time series for your state or province and um, and get that 50-year record right in front of you. So it's pretty amazing technology how that allows that. In 2008, uh, USGS made what I consider an institutionally brave decision to uh, distribute the data at no cost to anybody who requests the data. So uh, there used to be a charge for the data, and now it, it's, it's free, freely available. And the USGS and some of these private cloud operators are working to make the data more accessible to people so that you don't have to be an expert necessarily to, uh, to download and, and create a time series or otherwise analyze the data. And, and, and USGS is working towards what they call an analysis-ready data set. There's been a real evolution of ease of access uh, for the data. So you don't necessarily have to be a total expert uh, to, to be able to, to access and use the data. That data, is that just 
of the US or can someone contact about any area in the world? Uh, it, that must cause some headaches uh, with the foreign office, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, secondly, wh- what size are the photos? How big is the area that's photographed with each pass over? Right. So, so a single Landsat image is 185 by 180 kilometers. Right. Um, so, you know, you get, uh, you know, maybe for, for our area, the better part of the state of Maryland, for example, would be, a, would be an example. The resolution of Landsat is about 30 meters on a ground. So each pixel is about the size of a baseball diamond for wow. comparison. Um, that also means that it's not a spy satellite. And so the other part of your question was, is Landsat just over the U.S. or is it global? It's completely global. Um, and you can get data from anywhere in the world. And, and there's no prohibition on, on either imaging parts of the world or getting the data once they're acquired from, from anybody. But at 30 meter resolution, we're, we're not looking at license plates, right? We're, yeah. we're looking at <laughs> farm fields, we're looking at forest stands and so forth. And so um, if you're interested in espionage lens, that's probably not the tool that you're, uh, that you're after. <laughs> Are there any other Earth remote sensing programs that have augmented Landsat's uh, discoveries throughout the decades? And I'm curious, uh, from a historical perspective, you know, in the early years of Landsat, what did it take to get some of the, you know, some of the imagery for it? Because um, I- I've looked at some of the early Landsat imagery and it- it's surprisingly really detailed. You know, you think, oh, it's in the 70s, it's going to be low res, you know, and stuff like that. But it's really pretty good. You know, can you tell us a little bit about those things? The Landsat instruments have always collected digital data. So just like a digital camera now, uh, the data have always been digital. And back in the 70s, a lot of people were not accustomed to using digital data. They didn't have digital cameras, didn't have JPEG images, uh, didn't have Photoshop. So a lot of uh, the early analyses were performed by creating images from the digital data and then people doing uh, visual photo interpretation on them. Uh, Gradually, the ability to apply computer-aided analyses uh, of the digital data emerged um, one of the uh, earliest conferences in the 70s that featured the use of Landsat data was held at Purdue University every year. And it was called, uh, it was computer processing of remote sensing data. And, and that was like a new thing. The analyses progressed from uh, visual image analysis to computer aided analyses. And now with uh, high performance computers and cloud computing, uh, the data can be used across, you know, continental to even global size areas. And and these time series analyses that Jeff mentioned can be performed in ways that were not possible early on. Until the mid-1980s, Landsat was really the only game in town for satellite observations of ground surfaces. Then the French launched a system called SPOT, System Probatard de l'Observation de la Terre. I just mangled the French language. They're probably not going to appreciate that. And gradually, um, other national space agencies began to launch remote sensing satellites. The Indian Remote Sensing Organization, known as ISRO, uh, launched some remote sensing satellites. Recently, the uh, European Space Agency, ESA, has a whole 
program of Earth observing satellites they call Copernicus. Part of that program has been uh, satellites called Sentinel 2, which are very Landsat like uh, in their uh, capabilities and design. And now private companies have emerged that are launching uh, satellites capable of high resolution imagery. And a lot, and a lot of their anchor tenants are, are uh, national security agencies, but they, they sell their data publicly. So they, they're producing images with a spatial resolution of a meter or, or even wow. less. And good examples would be a company called Maxar now. Part of that company used to be called Digital Globe. And another company that's prominent is called uh, Planet, and they've launched a, I think they call them flocks of CubeSats with very uh, small instruments on them uh, to make frequent sub-meter uh, uh, collections of imagery you know, across the globe. But there's differences between Landsat and uh, those capabilities, uh, including our attention to sensor calibration and Landsat instruments have always acquired data for multiple spectral bands, that is, at, at frequencies that include the visible but go beyond the visible into the near and shortwave infrared portion of the spectrum and, and out into the thermal longer wave portion of the spectrum. So the, the additional images that Jim mentioned are all optical images. I take images just like Landsat, although at different resolutions and different spectral bands. but. Um, there's also sort of a plays well with element plays well with others element that there are scientific satellites that complement Landsat as well. So um, a couple of quick examples for vegetation, we use LIDAR systems to look at the height of vegetation. Um, and you can combine that with the land cover change analysis from Landsat to look at the total amount of carbon being emitted or taken out of the atmosphere. Very important measurement. Uh, similarly, we have gravity satellites that look at or, that are able to look at groundwater withdrawal. So you can couple the land use analysis that comes out of Landsat with the cheap effects on groundwater from from other satellites. So there's a lot of that can be done by combining different modalities of observation. That is so cool. Yeah, I just read. I I just pulled up an article in the Landsat, uh, the USGS website. And it was like, yeah, if you have a smartphone, you've got Landsat on your phone. And I was like, I never, <laughs> uh, obviously I knew that, but I never thought of it that way. You know, like, wow, that's, you know, because I remember as a kid, you had to go like to a specific place and get all the pictures and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, it's all on your phone. Of course. Yeah, of course. Now, we've had a couple of questions from some of our Patreon subscribers. One is from Leo Hilsendegger, and he asked, how does... The satellite technology today compared to 50 years ago in regards to both performance and size technology has obviously enabled things to get much smaller but that, does that mean you send a smaller satellite or do you just have more tools on each one you mentioned buses earlier and things like that so i'm i, I know things have changed quite a lot but i just wondered if there was uh, some clear and obvious examples you could share well the size of of the instruments has uh, been able to shrink quite a bit for a given resolution and, and a given number of spectral bands. There are some limits of, on physics, though, in terms of how small the optics can get while still being able to resolve something on the ground of a certain size, you know, with the diffraction limit, and that's not going to change. What has happened is, for example, uh, the focal planes, just like on your iPhone, you have a focal plane that, that has a certain number of picture elements or pixels on it, and, and those have shrunk and become much more capable over the years and have really been able to drive the size of instrumentation down. 
So that is something that we're looking at for, for, for future Landsats is taking advantage of those um, technology innovations and being able to both shrink the size of the instruments, which allows a smaller platform, which allows you to launch multiple platforms at once, for example, or use a smaller rocket and save some money, but also just uh, allowing more, uh, more spectral bands as well. And you've kind of just touched on it there as well. The, so the other question we had is from Daniel Gillies, who asked, what comes next? What's the future of Earth observation? And what does that look like? Uh, and, and I'd like to focus that more on, on Landsat. Obviously, Landsat 9 went up last year. So is the plan just to keep rolling them out? Or do you think private enterprise will take over that so that Lands Landsat doesn't have to be a government thing anymore? How do you see it in 50 years? So just to recap the brief recent history, Landsat 9 was a basically direct copy of Landsat 8, uh, which took advantage of the fact we had some spare parts left over. Nice. Landsat 10, which is currently called Landsat Next, that's still under discussion as far as what the architecture is going to look like, but the, the draft requirements that have been put out for, for comment uh, envision, I think, a, a much more capable system uh, with a spatial resolution down from 30 meters down to 10 meters and 26 spectral bands instead of the current 10 or 11. And a higher temporal revisit as well, which is something that the community has really been looking for. Even eight-day revisit with two satellites is not enough to be able to capture things on the ground that are changing every day. So we're trying to meet that, that need with Landsat next. The second part of your question was sort of the, the policy question, which is what is the relative role of a government system versus a private enterprise? Um, now that private uh, remote sensing systems are becoming more common and more capable. As Jim said earlier, the, the spectral coverage of Landsat is unique and it's not at this time at least replicated within the private commercial remote sensing systems going out into the shortwave infrared and into the thermal infrared. You need larger instruments and more capable instruments to be able to image out in those areas. And um, at the moment, there isn't the commercial market to do it. Mm. So there is a unique role for Landsat and its, its science capabilities. As Jim also said earlier, Landsat is, is very carefully calibrated, right? So we match the observations on the satellite to physical, physical measurements of either surface reflectance or surface temperature, depending on which band you're moving. Um, and that's extremely important if you're trying to do this 50-year-long record. You want to make sure that what's changing is the Earth below you and not the instrumentation, because you can badly misinterpret a, a satellite record that way. So for those reasons, we think that the, there is the, the need for a government sort of common good uh, baseline system, but upon which the, uh, the commercial systems can sort of add on and add capability. Yeah, your question goes back decades. In the 80s, operations of Landsat 4 and Landsat 5 after launch uh, were transferred to a private company called EOSAT. Uh, that transfer was initiated under the Carter administration and followed through by the Reagan administration. So it was a, a bipartisan effort. And during the years in which Landsat 4 and Landsat 5 uh, were operated, uh, it didn't work out well for a number of reasons. The cost of the data became prohibitive. Really, hardly anybody could afford uh, the prices that were being charged. Data collection was not systematic. Basically, the instruments would be turned off uh, unless they had a customer for the data. Calibration was not uh, carefully maintained. 
uh, and then, well, also then the private company was responsible in collaboration with NOAA for launching Landsat 6, which failed to uh, achieve orbit. So all those things worked against uh, the business case for that commercialization. And in 1992, a law was passed, Remote Sensing uh, Policy Act, uh, which returned responsibility for building, launching, and operating Landsat 7 to the U.S. government. After some uh, a little bit of a convolution, it, it came down to NASA building and launching uh, Landsat 7 and USGS, assuming responsibility for operations and for collecting and preserving the data. And so... As we go into the future, it was addressed. We attempted to address uh, some commercialization again as we formulated what's now Landsat 8. That didn't work out. I'll say we, I hope I'm not speaking for Jeff, but we think that Landsat is complementary to all the other capabilities that are being built and operated by both commercial and, and foreign national partners. But you have to think, is there a business case for maintaining an archive and distributing data at no cost uh, that goes back 50 years or 100 years, uh, which is the kind of time frame that's required to try to see the, uh, the signal of climate change. And, you know, I think Jeff and I are both firmly in the camp that there's a role for the federal government in uh, continuing uh, Landsat operations and not, not turning it over. Uh, as a private or or even an international effort absolutely that opportunities to generate goodwill from this project with countries around the world it must have been huge um it's one of those projects which can only really unite people in my opinion but i imagine also there's a fair amount of criticism from people who just don't believe uh, how frustrating is all of that stuff for you guys as people are working with it when people just say oh the well, let's not get too deep into it, but how frustrating is it when 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 you hear things like that? You mean that people are skeptical about climate change? And Yes. Yeah, well, at, at NASA, our job is to provide information for informed policy decisions. And so we uh, we are directed to, to stay out of policy and uh, just continue to make the observations that maybe make some policy decisions that are, in our opinion, obvious, but they're not our decisions. You know, I I think it's important for us to continue to make accurate, credible observations that that are available to the public. And uh, there was a survey done by NPR about five years, National Public Radio, about five years ago. It came out to say something like that the NASA was the most credible credible federal agency when it came to climate change uh, in the U.S. And so we maintain that by being very rigorous in how we obtain and analyze observations from space, uh, from the high vantage point of space. That's our role. So personally, do I get frustrated? Yeah, but but I'm gratified to have been part of a program that continues to make uh, credible observations. Uh, so that we can provide the evidence, irrefutable evidence of, of, of ongoing climate change and you know, let the policymakers decide what to do after that. Uh, also, when you, I wanted to mention, when you spoke of goodwill, the Landsat satellites continue to directly downlink and have since Landsat 1 
uh, data to a network of international ground stations. So other foreign nations can have direct access to the data that goes right to their ground station on their within their countries and uh, be able to use that data as they see fit. So it's always been a ambassador of goodwill. The program has been an ambassador of goodwill, I think, since its inception. That, I think that leads us on nicely to this question, uh, which is how, how do you think Landsat will be remembered in a hundred years? There aren't that many um, scientific monitoring programs that last that long. Mm. You know, maybe some of the ice cap uh, drilling projects and weather stations and so forth. But I think the Landsat is in that same class of providing a, a, a long-term picture of how the planet is changing that's completely unique. I, I think also the, the visual element of Landsat is very important. I think you may be able to argue with climate change, for example, but what you can't argue about is uh, the picture of deforestation across the Amazon over the last 40, 50 years. So providing an objective and irrefutable view of, of how Earth's environments are changing, I think, is is absolutely critical. And I think that's, you know, that baseline, that benchmark is going to be how Landsat is remembered. I think we sometimes uh, also uh, forget about just how stunningly beautiful the uh, surface of the Earth is as observed from space. Well, we do focus on a lot of the problems that are occurring due to natural and, and uh, man-made change. But uh, USGS has a um, website called Earth is Art, uh, which is predominantly consists of Landsat images that have been rendered in a way that really brings out you know, just the natural beauty and the awe of observing the Earth from uh, from space. So I hope that the Landsat program is not, I hope it is remembered for the unique information that it's provided and how it really revolutionized our ability to study the Earth. Uh, but I also hope it's, people remember that, wow, it's really stunning when you when you look at the Earth from, the, from that high of a vantage point. Yeah, there was a, an article in the Atlantic uh, well, about five or six years ago by Robinson Mayer. And he had a he had a great sentence. I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, you know, if the idea that satellites are aloft taking pictures of the planet every day, if that seems self-evident, it's only because Landsat made it so. It certainly wasn't self-evident that that would be the case in 1972, and it certainly wasn't self-evident that that would grow and prosper and sort of last for the next 50 or 100 years. Um, so, yeah, Landsat will also be remembered as a pioneer. And closing out, Landsat, obviously, it debuted in 1972. And, you know, that was sort of a weird transitional time for spaceflight, you know, because you were, especially people who, you know, weren't really plugged into, I should say, like robotic spaceflight. You know, people viewed it as, oh, God, the you know, the moon landings are ending and, you know, and NASA's shutting down, I think. So... It's my personal belief that Landsat never really got its recognition that it really deserved because it's not, you know, not and I'm not trying to, you know, poo poo the Apollo program, but it's, you know, it's not landing on the moon. It's not as glamorous, I guess. So do you think it's time that, you know, Landsat finally gets, you know, the recognition it really deserves? <laughs> Short answer would be yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, at NASA, we work very conscientiously on, on what we call outreach. 
So we want the public to both understand what we do, how we do it, and why it's important. And, and, and part of that is self-serving uh, in that we require public uh, tax dollar funding uh, of our programs. And we we try to make uh, sure that that the public understands that they're getting value for the tax dollars that have been spent on the program. But, uh, but also it's, it's partly educational. We, you know, we just want people, we're driven by, motivated by helping people understand the earth and how it works and how it's changing over time. Because Landsat provides, and our other earth-observing systems provide important, uh, credible, reliable data, uh, we, we want people to view it as such. So, yeah. We would like to Landsat and the other Earth uh, Science uh, observational programs that we uh, promote or that we develop at NASA to to be recognized for their for their value and what what they're providing. I think you you kind of referenced this earlier that obviously Google comes in, makes Google Earth an app, and most people probably think that Google put satellites up there and took all these photos and it it doesn't say powered by Landsat. Does that frustrate you as well? I'm asking. I'm just trying to find out how frustrated you are. <laughs> you know, is, is that something that you you think that that, that perhaps NASA, perhaps it's a NASA job, but perhaps it's people like mine, my, my Emily's job to make people aware? This is why we have all of this cool stuff now. Does it frustrate you? Um. Yes. I mean, I, I do think Google. You know, if you look at the bottom of their. Um, Google Maps, for example, you see that the satellite image comes from Landsat. You know, it says they're courtesy of U.S. Geological Survey or something like that. Um, but you know, in general, I think as Jim said, not everybody even realizes that NASA has an Earth Science program, let alone yeah. Landsat. I think people are going to hear a lot about Landsat this year. It is the 50th anniversary. There's a lot of press that's going to happen. Uh, your podcast included, um, and so it's a good opportunity to remind people that you know the government has had this program for the last uh, five decades and and we'll continue to uh, to monitor the planet. So sometimes it gets frustrating, but we just keep getting the message out. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I often see on the news, you know, uh, satellite data. You can ask my wife; I'll be yelling, "That's Landsat data." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's it's why we I think we uh, enjoy having the opportunity to talk to people like you to try to get the. Uh, try to get the message out. So, you know, and I also put in a plug that all the successfully launched Landsat satellites, the development of those satellites and the launch of those satellites were all managed by NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, where Jeff and I worked in in Greenbelt, Maryland. And uh, we're pretty proud of that record, I think. Mm. You know, obviously it's nice to get that recognition, but the most important thing really is to have that information highly regarded and available to people. Absolutely. I imagine JPL get all the plaudits for all the stuff they do that uh, gets all the headlines, but you guys at, at uh, Goddard go under the radar a little bit. But thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it and, and open our eyes to it. And hopefully some of our, our listeners as well, who may not have ever heard of Landsat before this episode, but would definitely have been aware of it, but just not aware of it. Something like that. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you for the opportunity. We, I enjoy talking to you. I'm, I'm sure I can speak for Jeff and say we enjoy talking to you. It's been, it's been great. Thanks. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you so lot. much. Yeah, this was really cool. Thank you. This operation is somewhat like 
This program just doesn't get the recognition, does it? No, it doesn't. That's the thing. Um, I think it came out. It debuted. Unfortunately, I mean, this is just my take on it. I could be wrong. If any space historians have another take on this, that's fine. Please contact us and we'll entertain it. But I think it came out during sort of a weird transitional period for just NASA in general. You know, 1972, the moon landings were ending, you know, Skylab was starting. Yep, I got it in, <laughs> you know, and, and it just was kind of a weird period. And I think, you know, not to poo-poo the Apollo program, but, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't seen as glamorous as the Apollo program. Walking on the moon. Yeah. If you look at the Landsat imagery from the early 70s, I mean, for the time it was taken it's mind-blowing. I mean, it, it's actually quite detailed considering, you know, they didn't have the kind of digital imagery technology that we have now. As a kid, I had a poster, like a, I was a nerd, but I had a, like a Landsat, like a poster on my wall because I thought it was cool. It's my personal feeling that I don't think Landsat's ever got its moment. I think we've just kind of taken it for granted. It's connecting the dots, isn't it, that you have to do in your own head? Because obviously, Landsat isn't the only images of Earth we've ever had. But a lot of the science we see and things like Google Earth and stuff like that have come from that. And you have to connect the dots between what you see on on your screen or uh, on the news or whatever with the idea that this has come from Landsat. And the word Landsat doesn't often get put with those images or whenever this data is put out there so it's easy to forget that it's that's where it's come from or that this program has that value there's probably so many people that just aren't even aware of its existence exactly even though as i said at the end they are aware of it of course they're aware of it we love an unsung hero on this podcast this is an unsung hero this is an absolute unsung hero uh as jim said it was a pioneer you know when they started this they didn't I didn't say, oh, in 50 years' time, we'll have this record of all these different areas from 50 years taken with exactly the same settings, and we know exactly the settings that each thing was yep. done, so we can do an absolute comparison from 1972 to 2022 and, and have that visual comparison. Yeah. That wasn't actually what was thought would happen, and that is what's happened. It's one. It's a wonderful program that we should be proud of and we should celebrate. And there's part of me that thinks we shouldn't allow things like Google to come in and and take the credit for it. And uh, yeah, 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 they say it at the bottom. But you know, it's it, it's a, such a huge thing. And and Goddard doesn't get the credit it does. No, how it many doesn't. people even know about NASA Goddard? Most yeah. people would have heard of Houston. They would have heard of uh, KSC. They would have heard of JPL. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of people don't think of you know NASA Goddard as being you know part of the equation. Yeah, you hear of JPL when you think of robotic spacecraft, right? You think JPL, you know, and like I said during the interview, you know, it's on our phones. We don't even realize it's on our phone. Yeah. We don't even think about it, you know. And it, no, but it's don't. but it's there. It's incredible that we have access to that data just now at, at our fingertips. And and Landsat really was the beginning of that which is something that really should be celebrated absolutely so happy birthday lance happy 50th birthday yes long may you reign over us yeah <laughs> if it were not for my naughty uh, my naughty ass cats for 
like that would probably rip it down. I would try to find that poster and get it put on my wall. It was awesome. They did discuss this during the interview, but it there's this uh, USGS website. I think it's by the USGS. It's called Earth is Art. The pictures from that stunning. Yeah, they're functional. They they serve a purpose, but they're exquisite. You know, and I think you know pictures really speak to people emotionally. You know, and I I think if more people dug into that imagery, they'd get more pumped up over it. Yeah, it's the age-old thing that you and I have talked about many times with many different topics of how do we make this sexy? How do we sell this to people? How do we make it interesting? Glamorous. Yeah, how do we make it interesting? How do we make sure that people are aware of it? And, you know, as I said in the thing, it's down to us as much as it's down to NASA. You know, everyone who likes these things needs to remind people, hey, you should... Find out about this. You know, there's another a whole other episode we need to do on GPS, which yes. is another similar program, which, you know, we so take for granted, but is absolutely one of the, the powerhouses of, of what goes on up there in, in, in terms of affecting our daily life. We can do that. Yeah, because that's another thing. Nope. It's on your phone, but you don't think about it. Yeah. yeah you're like, oh, I'll just, you know, type this in. I don't know where, you know, I used it this weekend. You know, when you get to sit down and think, you know, you're like uh, a satellite got in touch with my phone and allowed me to do that. (laughs) That's mind blowing. I mean, imagine, you know, 40 years ago, if somebody told you that, like, you're going to have this little thing. Forget forget 40 years ago, even 15 years ago, you know, or, or 20, exactly yeah, right. 20 years ago. Like, when did the smartphone first came? I think I got my first iPhone in, in 2009, 2010. Yeah. I think it was 2010. Before that, it did, I didn't have a map on my phone. I Me had to neither. look up directions for places. Even then, I was using the internet, <laughs> so I was still using GPS. I had to print perhaps. them. Yeah, you did. You walked around with a piece of paper and printed directions on it. Yeah, absolutely. I had did. to print them out, and then sometimes I'd print out a map, like a from the internet, like a little map, and then I'd yeah. have the direct, like the steps printed out, and then you had to look at the paper while you were driving. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. You definitely couldn't choose a voice to tell you which way. Yeah, to go. you couldn't choose a voice. It, you had yeah. to look at this damn paper. Sometimes I would clip it above my head and just look up if I had to. You know, I'm like that was just cumbersome. You know, I mean. Back in my day, it was really tough. <laughs> it wasn't that long no. ago. That's the crazy thing, isn't it? <laughs> Where are we going to be with this in 30, 40 years' time? I just think it's uh, it's quite something. And, and yeah, I, I hope that Landsat certainly gets celebrated over the course of this year for its, for its achievements. Uh, and as always, the full interview will be up on our Patreon page for those of you who'd like to watch our reactions uh, or just watch that all happening uh, without me taking my scissors to it. Uh, and you can find that on patreon.com forward slash space and things. So since Emily and I last recorded, there have been six launches in six locations. Russia, Florida, California, China, New Zealand, and French Guiana. And details of all those launches and their payloads, along with videos, if they exist, will be in our show notes, which you can find on spaceandthingspodcast.com or by clicking the link in the description of this episode in your podcast provider. The launch in French Guiana was the first launch of the European Space Agency's Vega C rocket, which has some pretty big upgrades from the original original Vega rocket, which the agency has been using since 2012. So that was pretty cool. Yes. 
As we mentioned right at the top of the show, the main event this week has been the publishing of the first photos from the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, I'm sure you've all seen them them by now, but if not, go find them and they will absolutely take your breath away. On Monday, July 11th, President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris and NASA Administrator Bill Nelson unveiled the first science quality images or image I should say, captured by the telescope, and it is the deepest infrared view of the universe to date and was created in just 12 and a half hours of observing time on one of the telescope's instruments. The image is quite spectacular, and despite all the things held within it, it covers just a tiny amount of the night sky. Bill Nelson said that if you held a grain of sand on the tip of your finger at arm's length, that is the part of the universe that you're seeing. Just one little speck of the universe. That is, <laughs> I feel like crying just reading that. That's so unbelievable. <laughs> um, on Tuesday, NASA released three other photos in a spectrum, which is a representation of the amount of different wavelengths a light emitted by an exoplanet dubbed WASP-96b. Uh, first discovered in 2013, this spectrum has given us new information on the composition of the planet, which is uh, 1,150 light years away. Just, yeah, around when the fourth- Just around the corner. Fourth Street <laughs> Starbucks. Yeah. This release is something that we've been waiting on patiently for since the telescope launched on Christmas Day and is the start of a new phase of scientific study of our universe. If these images are- anything to go by. This telescope is going to be worth every penny and every delay that took place uh, en route to getting it into space. I don't know what it's been like in America, but the coverage here has been huge. Given everything that's going on in this country at the moment, it's great to see that it's made the front pages. It's something we've we've worried about for a while, whether this would get the, the kudos it deserved. But these images have done exactly what we hoped, right? Yeah, I, I like I said earlier, um, I, I just feel like crying thinking about it. I, I think images are very emotional for people. Like Hubble, it was the same way. When we saw the first good images from Hubble after it was fixed, you saw the images and you were like, oh my God, you know? And mm. and this is like 10 times the Hubble. I mean, I, I kind of hate the comparisons to Hubble because Webb is primarily infrared, but still. And I think the telescopes both are amazing in their own right. And Hubble has certainly had an incredible 30 plus years in operation, but it just brought up a lot of emotions. You know, you really think like, man, we are just a, we're not even a speck in the universe. We're like a a microscopic, (laughs) almost invisible piece of the universe. I mean, it just, we're, we're not alone out there. It, it, It was just mind blowing to even think about it. Absolutely. I saw the first image. I was like, wow, that's cool. I wonder, I wonder how much of the sky that, actually uses and then to find out it's just a grain of rice at arm's length you're like what that's all that's there no that can't be right space is huge yeah i mean what was it was it you put on facebook next time you're arguing with someone on the internet (laughs) have a look yeah just send them that picture yeah remember how insignificant you are (laughs) yeah remember how like insignificant this argument is you know i mean seriously because like we're like a microscopic part of the universe. I mean, we're at the, as Jay Gallantine would have said, at the electrons moving stage, you know, yeah. we're just such a small part. And I think everybody who has seen that these photos has gotten kind of like an overview effect from them. I don't know if that's the right term, but sort of like a, man, we're really 
not as big as we thought we were. I don't know how to describe it. All I can say is I think these discoveries, we just haven't seen anything yet. It's going to be like Hubble where it just unfolds over the decades and we're just like amazed, you know? I, I agree. It's the start, isn't it? And that's yep. what's so wonderful about it. So yeah, I, I have actually enjoyed all the comparisons, by the way, with Hubble. <laughs> I know I know it's a little bit unfair because they're completely different. Hubble was designed started getting designed in the 70s. So you got to figure it's old tech. <laughs> exactly. But I think it's still interesting for people who who don't know the ins and outs of what's going on. I think it's interesting for them just to say, oh, right, this shows the step up in what we might learn from this compared to Hubble about those places. It doesn't take away anything from Hubble. I just think it just shows really clearly how much more we're going to learn but it stands on the shoulders of Hubble. I've quite enjoyed it. And I've enjoyed all the memes as well. There's been yes. a lot of great memes. <laughs> uh, but it's just great to see people talking about it. People who don't normally talk about space on their timelines, I'm seeing talk about these images. And I think that's great. Yeah. That's what we always hope for. Uh, and, and it's happening. So that's great. Yep, absolutely. So last week, we mentioned that NASA's capstone moon probe was on its way to the moon, but had gone silent. Well, the good news is that it's phoned home again. Oh, by the way, did you know that E.T. came out 40 years ago this December? Wow. Yeah, there you go. Little film reference for you there. Just dropped in. Anyway, the probe also completed its second engine burn on the on July 12th, and that appears to have been a success. It's, it's going to take a while, as we said last week, to get into this crazy orbit they're trying to get it into around the moon. But uh, hopefully it's had its glitch for this mission, and that's another uh, film reference that I'm sure most of you all have be able to recognize. <laughs> I know what film that is. I, yeah, that was like famous last words in that film. Yeah. I remember they said that and I was like, that's not the last thing that's going to screw up. Wow. Yeah. By far. Okay. Meanwhile, on Mars, Perseverance has collected its ninth and tenth samples while it's exploring an ancient ris- uh, river delta inside Jezero Crater. It's also been scouting out some locations for where the probe, which will collect the samples, might land. Uh, the photos of these samples are really special. Uh, you have to keep reminding yourself that these are from another planet. Uh, we have been getting some uh, amazing quality images from Mars for many years now, but it really is an amazing thing what we're doing there. You know how we always used to get the, the thing from people who'd say oh those images are fake about the moon land and stuff like that you could so clearly see why people could say that about these photos because they're so crisp and so clear and they look like they could just be taken around the corner in many ways but they're not they're from mars it's amazing it's so cool yeah it's like a several minute delay to even get any of these or probably longer to get any of these photos you know and you just oh geez space is big Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, if you are hoping that we might see the first orbital launch of SpaceX Super Heavy Starship rocket this month, well, we may have another delay. A fireball erupted at the base of Booster 7, which is a prototype of the rocket. I'll try and find a video and put it in the show notes, but according to Elon Musk, the company's founder and CEO, it was unintentional. And on Twitter, he said, yeah, actually not good. (laughs) Team is assessing damage. He then followed it up with a tweet explaining that he had just started an engine spin start test hopefully the engines haven't got too much damage yeah that looked bad anyway it did look bad didn't all it? i gotta say about that yeah the shockwave i was like oh damn yes that's not good hey congratulations this is real good 
that's it for this week. Uh, thanks again for listening and for your support. And thanks for all of your contact this week. It seems that you all really enjoyed our interview with Jay Galantine. A special thanks to Jen for buying a t-shirt this week. Yep. We're now just two episodes away from our 100th show, and we're still here and not going anywhere. Absolutely not. And uh, we have some great plans for the future too. So please continue to hit that share button and consider joining us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash space and things. We have 44 subscribers so far. It'd be great to get to 50 by show 100. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions. <laughs>